having a wonderful holiday. I've got a stat consult for you in ER bed 13. Dr. Heartthrob is consulting you for... Oh, what was it? Oh, I'll have to look at the tracker again. Ah, yes. Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Bye-bye now. Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back. We've got a great episode today, which will be a big one on an incredibly important topic, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. As healthcare providers, we have to be the experts at the diseases that can kill our patients, and for dermatologists, SJS and TEN is one of them. We'll start out today's episode going over some important background information on SJS and TEN, and then we'll bring it all together and see this patient in the ER with Dr. Dude and go over some management pearls. Getting comfortable outside of your comfort zone is the key to tackling Stevens-Johnson. It reminds me of the time I surfed at Pei in Hawaii. The locals call it Jaws for a reason. No one goes there to get comfy. As always, we'll go over where we're at in our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. And we're currently going through the third group, the vascular disorders, which we are breaking into eight subgroups, including one, erythema multiforme, which you should all know pretty well by now, two, the toxic erythema group, which has three subgroups, including one, drug eruptions like SJS and TEN, two, viral exanthems, and three, the toxin-mediated eruptions, including scarlet fever, staph scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. The third vascular group is the figurate or gyrate erythema group, which includes erythema annulari centrifugum, aka EAC, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Then we have four urticaria, five vasculitis, which refers to inflammation of the blood vessel wall, six vasculopathy, which refers to vascular damage with minimal or no inflammation or vasculitis, seven, retiform purpura, and eight, vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Okay, so what is Stevens-Johnson syndrome, aka SJS, and toxic epidermal necrolysis, aka TEN? They are both rare but possibly fatal drug rashes that lead to keratinocyte death, full thickness necrosis of the epidermis, and severe desquamation of the skin and mucosal surfaces that we see clinically. SJS and TEN exist on a spectrum and only really differ based on the body surface area that's affected. SJS is defined by less than 10% of BSA involved, where TEN is greater than 30% BSA. And then we have the SJS-TEN overlap syndrome, which is obviously in between from 10 to 30% BSA. Again, SJS is less than 10% of body surface area, TEN is greater than 30% BSA, and SJS-TEN overlap syndrome is between 10 to 30%. I don't know where that music always comes from, but I love it. it. Brings me back to my days as the front man for my band, the Peanut Butter Tacos. <laughs> yeah, good times. 
So how would you explain the pathogenesis behind SJSTEM? Like many conditions in derm, we are still figuring this out, but we believe that patients with certain predispositions are exposed to certain drugs or their metabolites, which then leads to activation of the fast death receptor on keratinocytes, which then leads to secretion of granulysin, granzyme B, and perforin from immune cells, which together leads to apoptosis of keratinocytes and eventually necrosis and sloughing of the skin and mucous membranes. Oh yeah, for sure. Cell death. Yep, yep, yep. So again, we believe SJS and TEN is caused by patients with specific predispositions being exposed to specific drugs that lead to activation of the fast death receptor on keratinocytes. And then we get secretion of granulysin, granzyme B, and perforin from immune cells, which leads to apoptosis of keratinocytes and eventual necrosis. And what are some of those predispositions, you might be thinking? These include patients who are slow acetylators of medications, those with certain HLA subtypes, or those with HIV or AIDS. A couple HLA types worth remembering are HLA-B1502 in Asians and East Indians who are exposed to carbamazepine, and then remember HLA-B5801 in Han Chinese patients who are exposed to allopurinol. Okay, okay, forget I asked. Let's get out of the weeds and onto the path of true enlightenment. Tell me some of the medications that can cause Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, including the most common culprit. There is a long, long list of over a hundred medications that have been associated with SJS and TEN, so we will mention the most likely ones. For starters, the most common cause is sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, aka Bactrim. Then the other major causes include allopurinol, anticonvulsants including phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. And then we have antimicrobials such as the beta-lactams, and those are going to include penicillins, cephalosporins, carbopenems, and the monobactams. And then don't forget NSAIDs and antiretrovirals such as abacavir and navirapine. So let's run through those again. For medications associated with SJS and TEN, we've got Bactrim leading the way along with allopurinol, anticonvulsants including phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, antimicrobials like the beta-lactams which include penicillins, cephalosporins, carbopenems, and the monobactams, and then we have NSAIDs and the antiretrovirals such as abacavir and navirapine. As far as timing, the magic number to remember is one to two weeks, because that's usually how long it takes for the rash of SJS or TEN to start after taking the first dose of the causative med. Although it is typically one to two weeks, it can occur within days if patients have previously taken the medication, as is often the case with Bactrim, or symptoms can start many weeks later, which can be the case with some of the anticonvulsants that cause SJS and TEN. And that's why I don't often give Bactrim. If you want to be a hot doc, don't give people SJS. Simple. So anyways, what's the typical story for one of these patients? Patients usually start with a prodrome of fevers and flu-like symptoms. Around one to three days later, the mucocutaneous lesions start, which may appear as erythema or erosions. I emphasize the muco because nearly all patients with SJS or TEN have mucosal involvement. So if there is one thing that you learn from this podcast, it is that you always, 
Always look in the patient's eyes, nose, mouth, and genital mucosa if you're suspecting SJS or TEN. For our listeners in primary care or emergency medicine, remember that if you consult dermatology for a concern of SJS, our first question will always be about mucosal involvement, so have this information ready for us. Keep in mind, though, that patients may simply complain of discomfort in these areas before lesions are evident. And when it comes to the skin, SJS or TEN typically starts on the trunk with erythematous macules and targetoid lesions with a dusky or purpuric center. Lesions may also start on the face, and the skin will often be tender to the touch. Here's a good one. What are two pearls for distinguishing SJS from erythema multiforme? Remember, think about the distribution of lesions and typical versus atypical targets. Pearl number one, erythema multiforme tends to involve the distal extremities such as the hands, whereas SJS and TEN is much less likely to involve the hands. Pearl number two, SJS has atypical targets, meaning that they are macular and not raised or palpable as an EM. Again, SJS has atypical targets, meaning that they are macular and not raised or palpable as they are an EM. So, after patients develop erythematous and targetoid lesions, they will quickly coalesce in hours to days and may progress to flaccid blisters and sheets of skin that start to desquamate. If you want to figure out the rash, you have to put your hands on it. What are two clinical signs that you can perform on or near these blisters? Remember the Nikolsky sign is positive when tangential pressure on unblistered skin causes skin sloughing. This can be done by twisting a pencil eraser on the skin. The Asbo-Hansen sign is positive when vertical pressure on a bulla causes lateral spread of the bulla onto unblistered skin. Both are a bad sign for patients. So, before we head to unlucky ER bed number 13, let's quick talk about what else is on your differential for Stevens-Johnson syndrome, because when you see these desquamating rashes, you don't want to get tunnel vision and miss these other serious conditions. Dr. Dude, the patient's skin is peeling off! Alright, alright. So what's your differential for desquamating rashes? When you see desquamating skin, you want to think about SJS, TEN, erythema multiforme major, staph scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, mycoplasma pneumonia-induced rash and mucositis, also referred to as MERM, and then we have drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome, formerly known as DRESS, purpura fulminans, acute graft-versus-host disease, and pemphigus vulgaris. We'll cover a lot of these conditions in our vascular reaction pattern and have them listed out in our study guide, so don't worry about memorizing this list. But for repetition's sake, for diffuse desquamation, think of SJS, TEN, EM major, staph scalded skin, toxic shock syndrome, MERM, drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome, purpura fulminans, acute graft-versus-host disease, and pemphigus vulgaris. And I should mention, this isn't an exhaustive differential, but it's a good place to start to keep tunnel vision away and keep an open mind. Doctor! Bed 13, please! Stop fiddling around! Yeah, I'll stop fiddling around when she stops fiddling around. Just go there and get the story, and I'll swing by after clinic if need be. You got this, right? 
You get to the bedside. The patient is a young woman in her 40s who looks uncomfortable. Step one is to quick scan the patient and make sure you're actually worried about SJS or TEN. Remember, over 90% of patients will have mucosal involvement. So introduce yourself and get a quick look in their eyes, nose, and mouth. Glance at the rash and ask about skin pain. This patient's lips are sloughing and painful. She points to a dusky plaque on her cheek and it's tender when you touch it. You're definitely worried about SJS, so you jump right into your history. Start by getting the HPI or story on the rash. When and where did it start on the body? How has it progressed since it started, etc. Since nearly all cases are caused by medications, you want to review all, and I mean all the medications the patient takes at home. This is not only prescriptions, this is herbals, supplements, eye drops, over-the-counter stuff like NSAIDs, everything. I have found it really helpful to go into the EMR and print a physical copy of their home med list and all the medications they've received while in the hospital, and then go through them with the patient one by one and make notes on the paper. Take notes on when they started each of the medications and when they last had them. In your mind, you want to risk stratify these medications into likely culprits, possible culprits, and unlikely culprits based on the type of medication and when it was started. For the sake of mastery, what were those common SJSTEN culprits again? Remember, think about Bactrim or other sulfa drugs, allopurinol, anticonvulsants including phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, antimicrobials like the beta-lactams, NSAIDs, and antiretrovirals. So again, your review of the patient's medications is the most crucial part of your HMP, since stopping the causative medicine is the most important component to managing these patients. Keep in mind that patients don't always remember or mention the medications they've taken recently, so a nice pearl is to also ask about recent infections or hospitalizations. You will have patients who forget to mention that they took a short course of antibiotics for a sinus infection, for example, or that they were hospitalized for something like a knee replacement and didn't realize that they got perioperative antibiotics. Knowing about recent infections also helps you narrow your differential, since patients with mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis, aka MERM, will have signs and symptoms of a respiratory infection. It can also be helpful to ask about a history of HSV infections or cold sores, since this would be more suggestive of erythema multiforme major. So once you've got the story of the rash and identified any possible drug culprits, review the patient's past medical and surgical history, allergies, a quick family history, and social history. Next, you want to get a good review of systems. Remember, there is usually a prodrome of flu-like symptoms, so you want to ask about fevers, chills, fatigue, headaches, myalgias, arthralgias, etc. Next, don't forget the importance of mucosal site involvement at the eyes, nose, mouth, and genitals, which should lead you to ask about pain or other issues in these sites, such as photophobia, vision changes, nosebleeds, sore throat, painful swallowing, and dysuria. The respiratory and GI mucosa can be affected in severe cases, so it's also helpful to ask about shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. And as far as the skin goes, always, always remember to ask about skin pain, which is suggestive of SJS, but it can also be seen in staph scalded skin as well. 
All right, you've got your history. Now you need to do an extremely thorough head-to-toe exam for your patient. Examine the eyes, the nose, and the mouth thoroughly for mucosal lesions. With the patient's permission and with a chaperone present, you also want to examine the genital and anal mucosa for lesions as well. Then look closely at the rash itself. Any dusky, purple color is suggestive of necrosis. Don't forget to test for the Nikolsky sign by putting tangential pressure on several erythematous, non-blistered areas. This can be done with your finger or by twisting a pencil eraser on the skin. If there is dermal epidermal cleavage, that's a positive Nikolsky sign. Also take note of surface area involved by using the rule of nines that we apply to burn patients, with 9% body surface area being applied to the head and each arm, whereas 18% is applied to the front of the torso, the back of the torso, or each individual leg. You can also estimate BSA by remembering that the patient's palmar surface, including their fingers, is 1% of their body surface area. So with your BSA calculation, you should only include the detached and detachable areas, but not necessarily skin that is simply erythematous but firmly attached to the patient. Now that you've looked over the patient head to toe, finish your exam by checking the patient's lymph nodes. So you step out of the room and you know you need a couple of biopsies. You can just hear Dr. Grumpy Pants' voice. Well, what will the biopsy show? Don't you ever suggest something without knowing the possible outcomes. You don't want to be like that Dr. Dude, letting your scalpel follow the wind or whatever hocus-pocus he's always blabbing about. Biopsies of early SJS or TEN lesions will show scattered apoptotic keratinocytes in the epidermis with an unimpressive perivascular lymphohistiocytic infiltrate with eosinophils. Remember that eosinophils help signal drug reactions in general. And as lesions progress, you start to see the full thickness epidermal necrosis and development of subepidermal blisters. Keep in mind that these findings can look identical to those seen in erythema multiforme, especially at the center of an EM lesion. Therefore, these conditions have to be differentiated clinically, not histologically. However, when you're truly worried about SJS and TEN, the level of the split is so important that people will oftentimes run a frozen section of the biopsy just to see where the split is in the skin. If it's very superficial near the granular layer, you're more likely dealing with the toxin-mediated eruptions like staph-scalded skin syndrome, amongst other diseases. However, if you see the deeper subepidermal blister with overlying confluent epidermal necrosis and a sparse infiltrate, you're more likely dealing with SJS and TEN. So, you call Dr. Dude and give him the story. He has you take three biopsies, one shave of the edge of a sloughed area for a frozen section to be run at the hospital, then a couple of punches to be sent off STAT for H&E and DIF to rule out blistering disorders such as pemphigus vulgaris. Your hospital pathologist calls you after reading the frozen section. Yeah, yeah, I see full thickness epidermal necrosis and the start of subepidermal blistering. You got your diagnosis of Steven Johnson syndrome. Can I go home now? I got a party pizza and Call of Duty waiting on me. So how do we figure out a prognosis for these patients? I see prognosis stats as a number to beat, and so should you. 
The answer lies in calculating a Scorton score when the patient presents to the hospital and again calculated 48 hours later. The Scorton utilizes seven parameters that can be remembered with the mnemonic TAMEBUG, which stands for tachycardia greater than 120 beats per minute, age greater than 40, history of malignancy, E for epidermal loss greater than 10%, B for bicarb level less than 20 milliequivalents per liter, U for serum urea, aka BUN greater than 27 milligrams per deciliter, and G for serum glucose greater than 250 milligrams per deciliter. I'll repeat these again in a sec. Each of these components of the Scorton score are worth one point each, and the more points, the higher predicted mortality, with zero or one points having a mortality of 3%, two points at 12%, three points at 35%, four points 58%, and five or greater points at greater than 90% mortality. So again, we calculate the mortality for SJS and TEN patients with the Scorton score, which has seven components. You can remember these with a great mnemonic from the Ali Khan and Hawker review book called TAMEBUG, which stands for tachycardia greater than 120 beats per minute, A for age greater than 40, history of malignancy, epidermal loss greater than 10%, B for serum bicarb level less than 20 milliequivalents per liter serum urea, aka BUN, greater than 27, and serum glucose greater than 250. Keep in mind that the Scorton score is most accurate on day three of these patients' hospitalization. Therefore, it's usually calculated on day one and day three. There are also studies comparing a new prognostic score called the ABCD10 rule, so keep an eye out for that in future validation studies. And what are some of the complications of SJS and TEN that we try to prevent with our stellar management? Some of the acute complications include massive fluid loss in areas of sloughed skin leading to electrolyte abnormalities, hypovolemic shock, and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. This sloughed skin also puts patients at a high risk of bacterial infections from staph and pseudomonas, which can lead to septic shock and death as well. Patients can also have pulmonary complications such as pneumonia or acute respiratory distress syndrome, aka ARDS, that can become deadly. And as far as more chronic complications, think about poor healing in the affected areas. The skin can have dispigmentation or scarring, and this scarring can lead to hair loss, nail changes, or it can contract the skin around important structures like the genitals or eyes, leading to ectropion, for example. Even though I don't have complications, what is the most common complication of SJS and TEN? That would be ocular changes, which vary from chronic dry eyes to symblepharon or to blindness. Symblepharon describes adhesion of the inner eyelid to the eyeball itself. There are some impressive pictures of symblepharon on Google waiting for you, so be sure to check those out and remember that the earlier you stop the drug, the less likely these complications are to occur. Alright, so you've got your diagnosis, you know the morbidities and how to calculate risk of mortality with a Scorton score, so now what? How do we take care of these patients once we clinch the diagnosis? Step one, the most important step, is figuring out which drug caused the rash and stop it ASAP. 
The earlier this is done, the better these patients do. If the culprit is unclear, all unnecessary medications should be stopped and the remaining ones that are necessary should be changed to drugs without an association with SGS or to alternatives that have shorter half-lives. And then step two in management will be various systemic treatments and extensive supportive care, which is ideally done in a burn unit or ICU if patients have greater than 10% of their body surface area affected. So what does supportive care actually mean to you for a TEN patient? And don't just talk about the medicine. You have to connect with these patients on a spiritual level. They're staring death in the face. The important components of supportive care include wound care, preventing infections, monitoring fluids and electrolytes, nutrition, various consultations, and adjunctive therapies. There is a lot of variation out there in the wound care and adjunctive therapies especially, so just know that what I mentioned isn't the only way to do things. As far as wound care, areas of sloughed skin can be covered with petrolatum impregnated gauze or nanocrystalline gauze until the affected areas re-epithelialize. There is debate on how often dressing changes should be done, but in general you want to keep your manipulation of the skin to a minimum to keep the epidermis intact. Because of this, some people advocate for pressure-controlled beds or aluminum sheets that minimize shearing forces on the skin. For infection prevention, antibiotic ointments or petrolatum are applied around the mouth and nose. These areas should also be cleansed with sterile sodium chloride to prevent them from drying out and becoming infected as well. And as far as monitoring I's and O's, a Foley catheter is often placed for these patients. Electrolytes are monitored at least daily and replaced as needed. And then keep in mind that these patients may need nutritional support due to protein loss and difficulty eating. So keep your nutrition colleagues near and dear to you. And who would you consult to at least cover yourself? I mean, I consult just for fun. Dermatologists can handle anything. Because of those ocular complications that we mentioned, an ophthalmology consult is essential. Our optho friends will often recommend ophthalmic antibiotic ointments for the eyelids and antibiotic or steroid eye drops to reduce infection and scarring, respectively. It's also crucial not to forget about genital involvement for these patients. One study of female TEN patients showed that up to 70% had vulvovaginal lesions, of which 30% had long-term issues from that involvement. And actually, the most frequent reason for a malpractice lawsuit after a female patient develops SJS or TEN is because of vaginal scarring and long-term dysfunction. So, get your friends an OB-GYN to help out who should be recommending prophylactic vaginal dilation and topical corticosteroids from the time the patient presents until they've completely healed up. Some literature also suggests that every female SJS or TEN patient, regardless of age, should receive a pelvic exam while admitted to identify and treat adhesions early. And it's also crucial to remember the vulvar scarring can continue to evolve for up to a year, so these patients will need close follow-up after their admission as well. So besides prayer, meditation, and love, can you name four systemic treatments used for SJS and TEN? How about systemic corticosteroids, IVIG, cyclosporin, and TNF-alpha inhibitors such as infliximab and etanercept? There is a lot of debate and ongoing research into which approach is best, so I'll hit on some brief highlights for steroids and IVIG before we close things out. Systemic steroids have been used for decades for SGS and TEN, with much debate about them. The theory behind these steroids is that early use can prevent some of the inflammation and damage to the skin that leads to epidermal necrosis. 
The disadvantage is the immunosuppression it causes in these patients who are already at a risk of infection. These factors lead some dermatologists to advocate for steroid use only early on in the disease course. The next medication that is often used is IVIG, which is proposed to work by binding up the FAST ligand in these patients' serum. Although there is some conflicting evidence, many studies show a benefit for IVIG, especially at higher doses of 0.75 mg per kg per day for four days. What are two labs you might want to check before giving them IVIG, aka the IVG, the original IG, the G machine? Dr. Dude, I don't know what you're talking about! Just order it. Before starting IVIG, you want to at least check a coagulation panel and an IgA level to rule out IgA deficiency. If patients are already hypercoagulable, adding more IVIG proteins will only sludge the patient's blood up more. And ruling out IgA deficiency is important because IVIG contains IgA. Therefore, if patients have an IgA deficiency, they will mount an immune response to the foreign IgA that is in IVIG. So again, ruling out IgA deficiency is important because IVIG contains IgA. Therefore, if patients have an IgA deficiency, they will mount an immune response to the foreign IgA that is in IVIG. Cool stuff, eh? So, that's what I've got for you all today. I know we could probably spend two episodes on SJS and TEN management, but there are a lot of good protocols and guidelines out there to guide you in these situations. So before we close things out with a summary, enjoy a little tunage first. Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis are both rare but possibly fatal mucocutaneous reactions, with SJS affecting less than 10% BSA, TEN affecting greater than 30% BSA, and the SJS-TEN overlap syndrome in between from 10 to 30%. We believe SJS and TEN are caused by patients having certain predispositions, and then they get exposed to certain drugs that lead to activation of the fast death receptor on keratinocytes, leading to secretion of granulysin, granzyme B, and perforin from immune cells, which causes apoptosis of keratinocytes, and eventually the necrosis that we see clinically. There is a long list of causative medications, but the main culprits to remember include Bactrim, allopurinol, anticonvulsants including phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, and then antimicrobials like the beta-lactams can lead to SGS and TEN, which include penicillins, cephalosporins, carbopenems, and the monobactams, and then we have NSAIDs, and finally antiretrovirals such as abacavir and nevirapine. As far as clinical presentation, remember that patients start with a flu-like illness one to two weeks after the new medication is started. One to three days after that, the mucocutaneous lesions start, which may appear as erythema or erosions on the mucous membranes. The rash is typically tender and appears as erythematous macules and targetoid lesions with a dusky or purpuric center that coalesce to form bulla or sheets of skin that slough. Remember not to get tunnel vision and keep a broad differential for skin sloughing, which includes SJS, TEN, EM major, staph scalded skin, toxic shock syndrome, MERM, drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome, purpura fulminans, acute graft-versus-host disease, and pemphigus vulgaris. 
Biopsies of early lesions will show scattered apoptotic keratinocytes in the epidermis with an unimpressive perivascular lymphohistiocytic infiltrate with eosinophils. As lesions progress, you see the full thickness epidermal necrosis in development of subepidermal blisters. We calculate the mortality for SJS and TEN patients with this Scorton score, which has seven components that you can remember with the mnemonic TAME bug, which stands for tachycardia greater than 120 beats per minute, age greater than 40, history of malignancy, epidermal loss greater than 10%, B for serum bicarb level less than 20 milliequivalents per liter, serum urea, aka BUN, greater than 27, and serum glucose greater than 250. Acute complications of SJS and TEN include electrolyte abnormalities, infections, hypovolemic or septic shock, pneumonia, and ARDS, while chronic complications often result from scarring that can affect vital structures such as the eyes or genitals. Management includes stopping the causative meds and supportive care, which includes wound care, infection prevention, monitoring fluids, electrolytes, and nutrition, consults with ophthalmology and possibly urology or OB-GYN, and adjunctive therapies such as systemic corticosteroids, IVIG, cyclosporin, and TNF-alpha inhibitors such as infliximab and etanercept. There is also a long list of other medications that have been tried for SJS and TEN, but these four are the most common to keep in mind. And that's all I've got for you today. Good work getting through some really dense but really important content. I want to finish today's episode with a song that's near and dear to me called Breathe, Relax. Quite fitting for the SJS episode, I know. The song is by a local Minnesota band called Thomas and the Shakes, which includes my brother Garrett on the drums and good friends Thomas on guitar and vocals and Mark on the flute. They also let yours truly play a little bass on the track. I listened to this song a lot during my internship when the hours were long and the days were rough. Thomas wrote a lot of beautiful lines that really stuck with me. When it's way too much and it's coming at you fast, breathe, relax. I'm Logan Kolb. Thanks for listening and enjoy the music and the rest of your day. Let's get back on track, maybe bring it all home. Full disclosure, I'm coming over to see your lonely bones Sit tight, it'll be alright, the whole thing's overblown I'll stand by, ride or die, you're never left alone When it's way too much and it's coming at you fast Breathe, relax, gone through some hard times or you're from the past Breathe, relax My brother It's another empty dead-end road Let's invest in some heavy rest Throw away your phone It seems we're not 17 Where the hell did it go? With time comes peace of mind At least that's what you're told Everybody's so tired of Going old Breathe, relax Time will take your body Don't let it take your soul Breathe
This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.